0: Hello, welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today, ever wondered what Karl Marx was really about? He's known as a revolutionary. He's associated with tyrants through the generations. But whilst he might have wanted a fight against the imbalance of capitalism, he presumably didn't want to see it replaced with communist dictators. Or did he? Well, today we try and understand the man and his theories, the way he saw the world a couple of centuries ago now. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Now, it is 200 years since Karl Marx was born, and he's been a divisive character ever since. Many might accept his theories on a class struggle between the workers and the capitalists, but most would be against his assumption that the problem could be overcome through revolution, an assumption that's been used an excused by tyrannical leaders over the years, from Lenin and Stalin through to Castro and Kim Jong-un. So are we really facing a class struggle between workers and capitalists? Well, let's, let's start with, with the basis of Marxist theory, Steve, how capitalists make a profit. And basically, it's the difference between what workers get paid and what people pay them for the products, isn't it, more or less?
1: yeah that's more or less what it was and and the um, um, the interesting thing about Marx is that he, he there were plenty of people who made that same sort of argument and it, it came from the uh, the labor theory of value, which we initially got uh the the beginnings of that we got from Smith and one thing which I'm, I'm emphatic about pointing out to people is that wasn't the very first theory of where uh, Surplus came from, but by surplus I mean you get somehow you get more outputs than inputs. Okay, we, yeah. we every year that's 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 capitalism's nature. There's more physical outputs than there are inputs every year, and there is uh, and there's a growing quality of those inputs over time. There's no argument about that happening in capitalism. The question is how does it happen? And the very first explanation for that uh, was given by the physiocrats. Uh, really, you, you can take it right back to um, not just to Caney and Candelon. You can take it back to William Petty and basically saying what we're doing is exploiting the free gift of the land. Now, frankly, that's more correct than the labor theory of value. So the, mm. the, we, we got to Adam Smith, and Smith uh, was tr- interacted with the physiocrats. I wouldn't say trained by them. Interacted with them, met can a, Uh And he came back, and he started by saying, oh, in fact, it's all courtesy of labor. That, he, he didn't say labor is the source of value. What he said was the division of labor increases the amount of value. So if you have uh, a job which is done by one worker, and you divide that job into two segments, each done by a worker specialized in that particular segment, You'll increase the total amount produced because of specialization, and that's what gives us the increase in value. But he never actually said that that was the only source of value. Now Marx came along. In fact, Smith actually, at much said, said that the farmers make more profit because, and this is actually, this is actually, in, in, in energy sense that I think in these days valid. He said a farmer makes a larger profit because not on, only his not only his farm workers, but his cattle are labourers. And that's actually correct, mm. in an energy point of view. Anyway, Marx comes along and says, "No, it's all due to labour, and it's due to the um, the, the essential difference between labour and any other commodity is that when you buy a commodity like an apple, you you pay for the apple, you get the apple, and the apple has no say in what you do with it. Uh, when you buy a when you hire a worker, you pay for the worker uh, the what the worker re- requires to be reproduced, uh, the means of subsistence, and then you can get the worker to work for as long as you like according to the labor contracts at the time. And Smith's, uh, most of the examples that Marx gave had a person working a 12-hour day, which was pretty common uh, during the, uh, the the early days of the Industrial Revolution, 12 hours a day down mill, you know, the old Monty mm. Python line. Mm. I was at 26 hours down, down mill, I forgot. If you were lucky, um, yeah. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, um, Yeah, but they say the 12 hours a day, and in fact the amount of time that it takes to produce the means of subsistence might be six hours a day. So the difference between the 12 hours you actually work and the six hours that's needed in, in a gener- generic sense to reproduce your uh, means of subsistence, that was the source of profit. No. So that became Marx's original explanation. And then he added to that the proposition that uh, over time Competition between capitalists would would mean that they would bring in technology to try to um, get an advantage. But because of this inherent uh, problem, uh, and I'm using problem inverted commas, uh, that labor is the only source of value, as you added more uh, capital relative to the labor, you're denominator, to give you what Marx called the rate of profit, and it wasn't technically a rate of profit, the term he used, he had the the amount of surplus being generated, which is the gap between uh, the, the 12 hours and the six, so that's the surplus, divide that by the inputs, which were the what you've got to pay for the worker, which is the six hours, plus the depreciation of machinery. He said, as you time goes on, you're adding more and more machinery, that will drive down um, the the rate of profit and he had he had a, a number of what he called countervailing tendencies that would slow that process down but overall what he saw was an inexorable ten, trend to a declining rate of profit and that declining rate of profit would therefore mean that capitalists would continue squeezing workers harder. Workers would fight back. Um, you'd finally get a class struggle of the you know, the ultimate confrontation, uh, and bang, out of that you'd have the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is a phrase that Marx used, and you'd go go transition to socialism. So, so he saw this. Yeah,
0: I mean, a lot yeah. of it is rubbish, isn't it? Clearly, but but you can see bits of it. Which you, I mean, for example, uh, you know, a, a, a squeezing uh, people on wages. But that is tends to be a, a, a factor of just how many jobs there are around doesn't it and and similarly you know the, the value of goods I mean if you look at uh, you know what people are prepared to pay is is nothing to do with how much a good cost to produce it's what people are prepared to pay which is uh, you know it's it's, it's brand it's uh, well, this, it, this, it's, it's this, how you position you know how it's positioned uh, the, it's the value people are placing on it well this this is
1: what you're putting forward is a, is a subjective idea about what sets the price people are willing to pay mm. and this is where the classical school of thought which marx is part of and by the way marx is in my opinion, the greatest of the classical economists. So I'm, I'm going to be very critical of him in this podcast, but having read everything he wrote on economics, uh, and, and by the way, when I, when I finally did that for my master's thesis, when I finished, I thought I'd stack up the books and see just how much paper I had to read to read everything he'd written on economics, leaving out all the pa- articles he wrote on things like the 18th premiere of, uh, of uh, Louis-Napoleon and... Um, a whole range of other works, he, all the writing he wrote for the New York Times, etc etc He made a substantial part of his uh, meager livings he made from being a journalist. Um, he wrote a total of three feet high, three feet thick worth of paper, right. and stacking up the economic and philosophical manuscripts, the wage, labor, and capital, yada, 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 it came just below the height of a tennis net which is my other obsession, as you know. Um, so that, that, you know, having read all that, you, you get an appreciation for the enormous scholarship that lay in his thinking. And what he did as well is to systematise the classical school argument that it isn't a subjective, that value is not subjective, a value is objective. And his basic argument was, uh, I can paraphrase it, Uh, for the podcast but if you consider like you know brand new iphone 10 something of that nature then yes the early adopters will pay a huge price to get the machine uh before anybody else and that that uh uniqueness, in a sense, of the, of the commodity. Uh, it's actually not a commodity. When these things first come out, mm. people are buying iPhones, which are produced using other commodities, right. but they're not using iPhones themselves to make commodities. Right. So they and become a commodity get,
0: over time, as we get used to it. That's those, right, yeah. yeah.
1: And as, as that happens, then you, it, 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 and this is something you can find in the neoclassical theory as well, the, in the long run, as they put it, you get to the stage where cost is determined Uh, Solely by cost of production, and then the price is determined by cost of production. So it
0: gets gets to it gets to a stage where the the put pressures have pushed it down so far. Really, people will pay. The minimum they can get away with, and the minimum they'll get away with, because it is a commodity, is basically how much it costs to produce plus a bit of profit.
1: And that's and that's the that was the classical school in general had position, and Ricardo was very emphatic about it, and so was Smith. And what they both had was a an inadequate theory of relative prices based on the amount of labour time going in. So having lost the energy. Uh, component of the, think of the thinking of the physiocrats, they reduced everything rather than to land, which is what the physiocrats did. They reduced it to labor, and they said things exchange relative to the amount of labor that goes into producing them. Nice. So Smith had a famous example of the, uh, of the what the, the beaver. I've forgotten the other animal. All of a sudden, um, a beaver and a deer. I think it was. And if it cost, if it took twice as much labour to kill the beaver as to kill the deer, then the the beaver should exchange for twice. Uh, for one beaver should exchange for two deer. And Ricardo elaborated that and said, well, if the weapon needed to kill the beaver was took more labour to produce than the weapon needed to kill the deer, then they'd have to give something inverted commas for the um, for the profits of stock. But they never actually systematised it, and they never explained and uh, where the profit still comes from if you buy and sell at the value. And Marx's advance at this stage was to say, well it's because you're buying this very very special very unique commodity called labour time where you pay its cost of production which is subsistence, uh, but it, what you can exploit out of it is its capacity to work, which can go on for longer than the length of time needed to produce the means of subsistence. Bang, here's profit. Yada, haven't you know, I explained it all very well. And then he tied it up with the argument that you would have this tendency for more machinery over time. Therefore, because the profit only comes from the labour component and increasing what Marx called organic composition of capital means the rate of profit declines and then, you know, I've come class struggle,
0: Borman, the wonderful socialist revolution, which of course was a total catastrophe. Yeah, it's good. If there's lots of jobs available, uh, then obviously uh, salaries are going to be lower because there's a a bigger supply of the labour market. If salaries are lower... By this theory, then products would be cheaper as well.
1: Yeah, and this is what what Marx had a lot of this reasoning in his thinking. And just for example, to talk about the actual value of labour power, uh, a lot of Marxists equated value of labour power, uh, like the subsistence wage, to the minimum to the, to the actual wage that was received. And you'll find this uh, you know, leading Marxist and now long dead, uh, like Ronald Meek and um, and Morris Dobb's, uh, often made that case. Um, but when you look at Marx himself, and I've <laughs> read everything he ever wrote on economics, he mentioned value of labour power and wage seven times in the one sentence or paragraph. And every time he did, he said the value of labour alias the minimum wage. In mm. other words, workers, the minimum they're going to get is that for subsistence. They're likely to get more. And this is something which Marxists haven't properly integrated into their thinking. But the main point that I want to make about where Marx went wrong, and I've done this in a, in a podcast or in a, in a written piece for my subscribers, which I hope will be published on Russia Today shortly, um, is that he developed a philosophical explanation rather than just the you know the, the, you know, the unique characteristics of labour. He developed another explanation in the middle in the middle of the uh, eighteen eight, fifty. Seven fifty-eight. but I think it was probably in January, when, by sheer accident, I think it was Otto Brer dropped into Marx's house, which I think at the time was in Chelsea, and he had somehow Marx had given away his copy of Logic, Hegel's Logic, to somebody else, and bang, here it is again. And this is at a point when Marx is avidly reading everything, rereading everything he's ever read on economics uh, beforehand, all the Smith, Ricardo, Canet, Petty, um, Senior, yada 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 that he read. Uh, when he first converted from a philosopher to an economist, he's back reading Hegel again. And um, I should have brought up a – I might sure if I can bring up a a couple of segments to give you a quote from the the writings. But he was – as he's reading these um, books, he's writing notes notes and notes and notes and notes and notes. And – before he got given the copy of Hegel's logic back again, it's like reading Ricardo—rather more eloquence, rather more fire—but very similar logic to and, and language to Ricardo. Then he starts reading Hegel, and all of a sudden, it's all the stuff about opposites and uh, um, foreground and background and unities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as I mentioned in the in the column on uh, on Patreon, it's almost like a Hunter S. Thompson moment—you know, the old Gonzo journalist, Hunter S. Thompson. Mm. Yeah, okay. You're reading him at one stage. You can tell he's 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 been he's been taking cocaine, and then wham, yeah. he's stoned, and he, and, he and there's this complete yeah. change. Your yeah, next paragraph, bang. Well, that was exactly what it was like in reading the Grundrisse. I haven't. It's about page two hundred f- in the book was became about a thousand pages long um, in a Penguin edition when it first came out back in the in the seventies. When I read it um, in, in the late, I think in the eighties when I was doing my master's thesis, um, it's about page two hundred and fifty where he's obviously got the copy of Hegel. And bang, the whole language changed, just like going from cocaine to marijuana on the hands of... or maybe the other way around, given the clarity from marijuana to cocaine is probably a better direction to describe it. But this sudden clarity, we're using this philosophical language. And most, a lot of Marxists, including prominent ones like Paul Sweezy, completely dismissed this and described it as Marx coquetting, which is a French term meaning flirting, uh, with the Hegelian mode of expression. But basically, you can ignore all that stuff. Well, they were totally wrong, because I believe that using Hegel's philosophical logic, Marx both developed a far stronger foundation for classical economics and rejected the labor theory of value, which gave him an existential crisis because without the labor theory of value and without the argument of the declining rate of profit, there was no necessity for socialism.
0: But I thought we—I mean, we just spent, uh, you know, a large part of the last ten minutes talking about the uh, how the labor value of theory might have some legs.
1: Yeah, but it's—it's—it's—it it's, has, it hasn't got unique legs. See, the thing about the argument about the, the unique characteristics of labor—say that it's—it's la- it's an argument by exclusion. No other product has the difference between commodity and commodity power. Labour has this difference between labour and labour power, and therefore that's the unique characteristics, only reason for a surplus. You can't find any other, and you'd pin people like Paul Sweezy saying that oh, uh, uh, there's no way that we can imagine that machinery has an occult capacity to to pr- produce to, to give more value than it contains. So the argument was mm. that uh, labour would give a surplus, machinery would not. Now, what Marx developed um, when he reread Hegel was applying Hegel's um, Version of dialectics to the question of value in capitalism. Hegel's also written an economics, something that I haven't read myself. I have to go back and read it at some point. But th- this this again gets very muddy because most people. I'll tell you. I'll ask you. And have you have you read my piece for the for the Patreon blog? It yes, I have. I yeah, you yeah. cheated. Yeah. Oh damn, damn. Okay. Well, 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 you've got to say it. What 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 do people think when they think dialectic? They think of three words, and
0: they are. Oh well, there you are. You see, you're testing how well I've read it. So. <laughs>
1: It's thesis, antithesis, synthesis.
0: Right. Okay. Now,
1: I said try this five times fast without something like Daffy Duck. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Yeah. Well, that actually doesn't belong to Hegel or Marx at all. It's another philosopher called Fichte. And I only – I mean, when I was reading – my own personal story here: I um, was very sceptical about the whole idea that you couldn't, that machinery didn't produce value. And I remember having discussions with my lefty friends at university back in the early '70s when we led the political economy dispute at Sydney University. And we were walking around the campus of Sydney University, which, as you know, has got a sort of high point of, of land just outside Sydney CBD. Mm. And this was 1972, and there's just Far as you can see, there are, there are cranes on building skyscrapers. It was an absolute building boom at that stage. And I remember remarking to one of my friends then that I, I have a very hard time imagining that all those cranes aren't adding value somehow. Now, um, typical bunch of lefties. We'd let a student revolt in 1973. At the end of it, we uh, spent Sydney's summer, and boy, this is a sacrifice. Sydney summer, locked in a, in a room in the sandstone-built quadrangle of Sydney University, reading Marx's capital together. So here we are reading the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of lefties. What else do you do? Yeah, well, well, um, you could
0: could be down at the beach probably. uh, Indeed, indeed. With suntan women or that sort of thing. (laughs) But no, lock yourself in the basement. Yes. Here we are. Okay. And I'm reading it saying, okay, I want a really good
1: explanation for Marx as to why machinery doesn't produce value. And then having been trained in mainstream economics where uh, it's all about marginal cost and marginal utility and and the market system equilibrating between the two, Marx started giving this explanation talking about use value and exchange value and saying that there was a, a gap between the two. They were incommensurable, is the expression he used. And what he said was, if you imagine a early and primitive... Um, societies or you imagine say first contact between a European culture and uh, a, a uh, Aboriginal culture somewhere uh, then one t- one group will have product they can produce that the other has no idea of how the product is made now the classic example of course is uh, Manhattan and you buy Manhattan Island for 43 beads and um, that story is more complicated than it's made out to be, but that was the price paid for to, for the uh, d- d- Dutch to buy Manhattan off the Indians, um, the, the island of Manhattan. Now, of course, the Indians would not have not known how to make glass. So glass beads, you know, elaborately coloured glass beads, they're actually trading beads, um, look like pretty hot stuff. So you can imagine the subjective valuation of those being enormous, and therefore, you know, 43 glass beads for Manhattan. Um What Marx said is, over time, you continue reproducing that trade, both sides get some knowledge of how the other produces whatever technology they have uniquely, and both sides also start to produce some of those goods for the purpose of trade. They're not producing it for consumption. They're not losing any utility themselves to give them away. So over time, you start to distinguish the use value of a commodity from its exchange value, and then its exchange value sets the price. Now, that, in Marx's philosophical terms... Uh, is using Hegel's dialectic, and that says that you you start from the idea of uh, any, what he called unity, has to exist inside a context. And if we're talking about society, then the context is society. The unity is anything that exists inside that society. If you imagine a commodity then a commodity has two two characteristics two fundamental characteristics exchange value its cost of production exchange value what it sells for yeah. and utility what it what you can use it for and what Marx – what Hegel argued is that um, the social – the society will focus upon some particular aspect of that unity, and in capitalism what you focus upon is the exchange value because you're trying to make a a numerical profit out of it. So you focus upon the exchange value. That cannot – that doesn't eliminate the use value. It just puts it into the background – and so, you, you, so you, you, the unity, I use this dog bone analysis, an, analogy, you've got this unity embedded inside society. Society focuses upon one aspect making that the foreground. That necessarily turns the remainder of that unity into the background, you get a tension between the two. And that was the basic foundation for Hegel's philosophy of change, which uh, was, I think, a very rich way of analysing any a system that evolves over time, and that's what Marx found himself applying. And he said, aha, the commodity is the essential unity in capitalism. Capitalism focuses upon the exchange value. That pushes the use value into the background. The foreground element determines the price. The background element determines that the exchange actually is is, is desired, Um, and there's a tension between the two. He then applies it to labor and says, "Well, labor exchange value, cost of production, means of subsistence—that's what you pay for it. Use value is what the, what the buyer exploits, and there's because the two are incommensurable. Normally, when you, when, when you and I buy a good as a consumer, where we have a subjective utility we're getting out of it, but in production, it's an objective utility. Hmm. You want to get, uh, you know, X hours of labor out of a worker. You have got to pay." Z hours in terms of time there's a gap between the two because they're incommensurable and the gap is positive you make a profit out of that so, and i thought it was a
0: brilliant explanation right. but exactly the same argument applied to machinery so okay let me try and get my head around some of this so are we now saying then because i because when we were talking about you know the the a utility gets down to the lowest price and the lowest price is largely determined by the cost of labor you start to add machines to that then the cost of the machine i mean you might have uh, you know interest payments on the loan for for buying that machine but ultimately the machine's not costing too much to run apart from the uh, the cost of power so that's not going to increase the price too much it's still going to be the uh, the cost of labor which is the, the which is the variable element of all of this isn't it so i mean the the cost of the machine isn't going to add a great deal of value and push up the price too much if you're working on the basis that the price always gets down to the lowest level but now you're saying well it's not that it's there's also this the utility it's what you're getting out of it as a consumer which means you're not necessarily going to pay well no, the no minimum but, price you're going to pay the price that's no, really- what
1: you what you get is an argument about um, whether you can get when you get a surplus out of inputs to production which went from being one about the unique characteristics of labor to one that's about characteristics that all commodities share and Marx actually made this uh, statement numerous times he said that the capitalist when he makes a profit out of labor ex- exploits the common characteristics of um, of all commodities he exploits the he pays their exchange value he exploits their use value mm. and the gap between the two is where the profit comes from yeah. now you apply exactly the same argument to machinery uh, if you you if you pay you pay the exchange value the cost of production of the machine you exploit its use value which is another incommensurable Quantity And Marx actually says this. He says there are two – the use value in production, the use value of your input uh, and the exchange value of your input are two incommensurable magnitudes. Now, magnitude does not mean quality. And I see a lot of Marxists try to wobble out of this by saying uh, it's, it's labor, machinery plays a qualitative role in production rather than a quantitative. What Marx gave when he, when he developed this argument was a rationale for saying any input to production can be a source of surplus, not just labor. And uh, this, this, uh, this is the intriguing thing about it is that having read this argument in capital and um, to me and saying to my colleagues at the time in this discussion group that this is an argument that labor alone is not the source of surplus, they basically ridiculed me, which is a typical attitude, typical reaction to having your ideas challenged I' found. Um, so when I did my master's thesis, I thought well I'm going to find where Marx actually first discovered this concept and that meant reading in chronological order, everything in Marx on economics, starting from the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844, uh, which he wrote in a garret in, in Paris as he read Mar- Ric- Ricardo and Smith and so on, uh, right through to you know, the final editions of, uh, of Capital. And the discovery turned up in the Grundrisse on page 267 in a footnote of the Penguin edition, a footnote going on for more than a page. And you find him saying, uh, I find the actual statement as he started to think in Hegelian terms, the he- Hegelian light bulb goes on when he says, "Is not value to be conceived as the unity of use value and exchange value? Uh, in and f- in and for itself, is value as such the general form in opposition to use value and exchange value as the particular form?" As I said, does this have significance in economics? Question mark. Now he's writing his notes to himself, and he's had this brainwave and he then starts applying it first of all to labor and easily gets exactly the same result he got by talking about the unique characteristics of labor but then when he starts talking about machinery uh, he waffles around a fair bit uh, all the way through but he does say at one point and this is um, the light where the light bulb confronts him with a huge challenge for his own beliefs it also has to be postulated that the use value of the machine significantly greater than its value. And if you left out the word is. Um, I'll read that again. It also has to be postulated, which was not done above, that the use value of the machine significantly greater than its value, i.e. that its devaluation in the service of production is not proportional to its increasing effect on production. In other words, the machine can be a source of surplus. Now, I can imagine what went on in his head when that happened because on occasions I've had a belief like, for example, my belief that money wasn't destroyed when debt was repaid, a belief that when I developed my logic further, I realised I was wrong. And, you know, oh, what do I do? And to me, like, I, what I had to do on the particular one is concede, okay, I'm wrong about that one, and I changed my logic and I admitted it. Uh, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I did it on that particular occasion. What Marx did was think, oh, shit, I've lost, I've lost, the, re- I've lost the declining rate of profit no, that can't be true. There must be some way I can reconcile the two. And then he goes through a huge amount of waffle, and that's the most polite way I can describe it, and the waffle manages to bury use value and exchange value into each other until such time as it looks like he's come out with the conclusion he wants. And the essential the contradiction in his own logic that he did at that point was he started off by saying um, part of this whole dialectic process is to say what is the opposite of... Um, of the the foreground aspect, so you've got your unity. You have foreground and background. You can also describe that as the the um, the entity and its opposite, which is a bit like the thesis and antithesis the stuff that Vic goes on with. Am I losing you here? <laughs> You're a little bit. Sorry, um, let me let me okay. pull you back a bit. Let me uh, and, okay uh, okay and yeah.
0: Imagine I'm because uh, I'm thinking if I'm um, if I'm running a company. And it, it all gets back to this idea of uh, you know how 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 would I maximise the profit of profit if I was running a company? I would have thought, um, I well, you know, I I know because I've been involved been involved in business for many years. You don't want to become a utility. Everything you focus on is making sure that your product doesn't become a utility product because you know then you really are getting squeezed on margins, and you're, you know people are paying the lowest minimum price they can get away with. So you make sure you never get into that situation. So you always deploy your resources whether it's machinery or people to work on something else which will provide greater value to people so they will pay more. So you don't you move off those utility products create something else which is uh, surpasses it uh, and uh, get you know deliver what's perceived as greater value for the for the customer so they pay more so you get a bigger margin uh, and uh, and as you start to get squeezed on margins again you do the same thing yeah, again. And
1: that's actually part of Marx's logic. Uh, because what he's doing at the early stage and this again is where Marxists by not understanding this whole use value exchange very dialectic that's part of I think obviously pivotal to marx 's thinking, except for where it stuffed him up on the declining rate of profit, is that Marx treated his analysis a bit like an onion where you work from the inner core and you get out further and further and you get more and more variations and we 're not thinking of Tony Abbott here, but you know the idea of a <laughs> of a, a inner core and going wider and wider and wider and at the very center he said we 're talking about things which are strictly commodities, which we see everything as a commodity, including labor and he actually says that in um, I think it's one of the preludes to volume one of Capital. He says that uh, we're going to assume that labour is paid its value, no more than its value. And he says, we relax, effectively says we'll relax this assumption at a later stage. So what he had was an analysis of just strictly commodities where you don't have. The type of innovation you're talking about. But when you generalize it at a later point, you say, well, we can talk about new products, which is what your argument is largely about. You're always inventing something new. And a new product differs from a standard commodity in the sense that the new product has been produced using commodities, but it's not itself used as. As an input to commodities, so it 's freed up from that constraint, and you can make those supernormal profits, as neoclassicals would describe them, but at a fundamental level, the explanation for surplus was this use value minus exchange value in production, and that's that 's the point that Marx is talking about so at if you 're calling
0: it supernormal profits i 'd say that every business is creating a supernormal profit because no business, even uh, utility companies. Try and repackage their utilities in a way that they can uh, create greater profit. You know, by oh yeah, yeah, uh, this by, by pricing schemes or, or whatever they do something which which is enhancing the value as far as the yeah, but it's can
1: still say. you're still starting off. You've got to start from a basis mm. uh, of you know, where, where do you make your surplus from, and that's why I come back to saying it's really about exploiting the energy that we find for free in the universe. That's yeah. the ultimate explanation, which Marx Marx's logic can handle, but he didn't actually include that in his own thinking. So tell me, what explain, the, the, explain to me yeah.
0: why. Uh, why labor wouldn't be a commodity, though. You made the point that, you know, people... But
1: labor, that labor, labor, labor is a commodity to begin yeah. with. But yeah. if we said like, labor... And actually, in, in Chapter 25 of Volume 1 of Capital, he starts talking about the wage varying in a cycle which is uh, where my own model of uh, the financial instability hypothesis came from, you know, based on the work of, of Richard Goodwin. Mm. So he did start saying, even in Volume 1, he, he, he allowed that the, the wage could rise or fall over time, given the pressures of competition that work that capitalists had to do to get labour. Yeah. If you had a boom going on, of course, workers can demand a, high, a higher wage, so they're getting more than just subsistence. So he did have that idea of variability in there. But he started from saying, let's assume everything is paid for its value sold at its value and bought at its value how do you make a profit and his initial explanation was just this unique characteristic of labor um, which would give justify a declining rate of profit argument as well if there's an increase in um, capital intensity over time but then he came up with this idea of use value and exchange value in general and when you apply that to both machinery and labour, seeing those as the two critical inputs to production, you get the answer: Well, they can both be a source of surplus, and therefore increasing organic composition of capital, as Marx called it, has no implications for the rate of surplus, has no implications for the rate of profit, and therefore, if you're an 18th, the 19th century revolutionary, and you think you're proven that socialism has to come about, you've suddenly got a new proof that says, "Hang on a sec, maybe socialism doesn't have to come about." What the F do I do? Mm. And Marx at that point, in my opinion, went through this process of fudging to try to make his two arguments seem consistent and completely stimmied people using his analysis. But if you imagine at the same time, and when Marx was heavily involved in all the internationales and the conflict between the communists and the anarchists and all the various lefty groups that existed back in the 19th century England and Europe – Imagine having come and say, "Comrades, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, I've just proven the revolution isn't necessarily going to happen." Right. I don't think that
0: would have occurred, and it right. certainly and so, didn't. And so he didn't do that, and that, of course, is what he's you know most remembered for. Perhaps this idea that uh, we only get change through revolution, and it's you know, and the filthy capitalists will be the first against the wall. Um, so, uh, had he changed his tune on that? Um, maybe his name would have been used less by these uh, tyrannical dictators. Well, he would
1: have been, if he'd actually changed the tune on that front, he would have been the basis of a very sensible uh, rebirth of the classical method uh, in the middle of the 1800s. Uh, But instead, he ossified it into the labor theory of value. And this is... More technical, that we need to get in a podcast. But once you, if you start from the belief that labor is the only source of surplus, and then you have to explain how you have uniform rates of profit with industries that have different ratios of capital to labor, you get caught up in what's called the transformation problem. And this mm. is like, a, it's an insoluble puzzle. And there are all sorts of attempts to solve the problem. Uh, they got more and more ludicrous with time. There's now a particular bunch of Marxists called TSS, which stands for time, I think, t- temporal single system, I think it's called. Um, Marx is still trying to prove the labor theory of value is right and um, there are a bunch of irre- irrelevant, <laughs> pardon me, I like some of them, but most, one of the leading member, a guy called Alan Kleiman, she's so a useless twerp, uh, who's three years after the crisis proved why it occurred because of the declining rate of profit, well wow, um, in the 2008 crisis, but they've basically wasted their time. They're trying to solve what is actually a mathematically insoluble problem and in that sense Rather than Marx being the leader of the revolution, he ended up being a justifying the political revolution for, on false grounds. But analytically, Marxists became this side little sect forever trying to get themselves consistent on this mathematical inconsistency called the transformation problem. So his legacy, to, to me, his legacy would be far greater as an intellectual if he'd admitted that he'd proven that there was no necessity for socialism. Uh, he didn't. So instead, we have this huge political figure who's had, over the long term, bugger all impact upon economic theory. And I would rather reverse that and say, look, this, this idea we had about dialectics is actually a very solid foundation for a dynamic analysis of capitalism. Uh, it is not a basis explaining why revolution has to occur. Uh, in fact, it's an explanation why revolution didn't wasn't necessary. Um, but, of course, that's not what we've got. And I'm trying to extricate the good stuff of Marx from what I see as the bad stuff, which is both, of course, the political consequences, but, again, this very uh, awkward
0: and mathematically false analysis of capitalism. Right. Well, we will have to revisit it again, won't we? Um, And and you can have another stab at trying to make me understand it because I only got half of that, to be honest. Uh, uh, It's a start. Yeah, it's a start. Absolutely. Uh, Well, thank you, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. And next time on the Debunking Economics podcast, we're going to look at uh, information and economics. Of course, economics is based on information. In theory, equal information to everyone, but that's not how it works. So if we had more information, would we have less inequality? That's the question next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening.